1 Corinthians chapter 7. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, This one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Genesis chapter 3. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. This is the word of the Lord. So today in our world, you'll hear cultural commentators uh, as well as Christian say, our culture just makes too big of a deal of sex. There's just too much talk about it. It's too big of a deal. And I would suggest, uh, propose to all of us that they're wrong, that I think it's not a big enough deal to most of us. In fact, it's almost impossible to make too big of a deal out of sex. Lust, as we've seen, is uh, the big idea for tonight. That's the, the sin or the vice that we're covering. And tonight's message is lust, the enemy of great sex. St. Augustine, when he wrote his confessions, wrote this. He said, Lord, give me chastity and continence, but not yet. What he was saying was, Lord, make me holy, but don't make me give up my unholy gratifications, at least not today. When he finally wanted to give up his lustful ways, he found out he wasn't able to. He described himself as imprisoned by the overwhelming force of habit. He found lust to be a demon that he had no success of exercising by his own power. Some people dismiss lust as just a mere sexual desire that's dialed up and there's no harm in fulfilling it. Some people believe the the real problem with lust is those who try to restrain our natural desire for pleasure. You know, the religious prudes, the pleasure haters who taint sex with fear and shame and guilty thou shalt nots. But the question I have for us to consider tonight is, is there a difference between sexual desire and lust? I want us to see three truths tonight that will help us understand why lust is an enemy of great sex. And we'll start with number one. Number one is this. God created us as sexual beings. 
It starts from the very beginning when God created man and woman. He created us as sexual beings. In fact, we see throughout the scriptures, and I'll point out some of them, that God considers sexual intercourse to be the highest, listen, purest kind of love. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, we'll look at it again here. It says, This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united as, or united into one. Many translations say united as one flesh. They become one flesh. Now, one flesh, when a husband and wife come together, means much more than sexual intercourse between a, a husband and a wife. But it doesn't mean anything less than that. It certainly means that. So we can't dismiss it as, well, it's just something else. There's something higher to that. But sex is the consummation of marriage between a husband and a wife. Plato was born some 400 years before Christ was born, and he won the day by describing a type of love that was superior to all other ones. And today we know that type of love as platonic love, a love that is platonic. It does not have sex in, uh, in the context of that relationship. This has been recurring throughout history, so this is... Uh, something that we can see throughout time as elevating a platonic relationship above a sexual relationship as if sex is somehow a lower kind of intimacy. That there's something better than a sexual relationship. But that's not what God says about sex. He doesn't say that you need to strive for something greater than this relationship. He's saying, this is the greatest that I have created for you. So why was it that Paul, the first letter or the first scripture that Manu read for us tonight was a letter, a part of a letter that Paul wrote to a church at Corinth. Why was he telling them, husbands, fulfill your wife's sexual needs, wives, fulfill your husband's sexual needs? Why was he telling them, you need to be having sex with your wives, your husbands? The reason is because they have found out, just like a lot of people have throughout time, that there's this idea that there is something greater than this, that you don't you no longer need the base, the foundational, animalistic, if you will, relationship of sex. That you need to attain, uh, uh, strive to attain to something higher. And Paul is saying, no. Evidently, some scholars believe that the church at Corinth had started to say, uh, they believe Paul had received a letter, and part of that letter uh, let them know that, hey, we've realized now that we're Christians, we don't have to have sex anymore. We can do something higher. Paul said, no, 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 stop. Sex is God's gift to you. This is a God's gift of marriage, and you need to be doing this. And this is what he says again in in those scriptures. I'll read it for you again. He says, The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband. The husband gives authority over his his body to his wife. And he says, Don't deprive each other of sexual relations unless... You both agree to refrain from it for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. So you have an agreement, hey, we're going to fast from this for a little while, for a week or two, or whatever it is, and we're really going to pray and seek God together in this way. But afterward, he says, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Sex is definitely part of God's plan for humanity, and it's a good part of his plan. In Ephesians 5, it's not on the screen, but I'll just... Um, paraphrase it for you. Paul talks about how marriage is a great mystery and how it illustrates how Christ and the church are one and they come together 
Just like a husband and a wife come together, there's intimacy that is special and one of a kind. Hosea chapter 2 alludes to the same, not alludes, it says the same thing, but it uses a metaphor. And, it, and God speaking of Israel, his people, he says, I will allure her and I will speak tenderly to her, my people. He says, my people, you will call me husband and I will betroth you to me. In faithfulness, you shall, quote unquote, know the Lord. And he uses the word know there. And in the literal sense of the word know in the Old Testament and new, when the Bible uses that, it's speaking of sexual intercourse between a man and a woman. Adam knew Eve, and she conceived. This is not saying that we're going to have sex with God or some twisted thing here. What it does, it shows us that the spiritual life that we have, the relationship we have with God, and the sexual life we have with our husbands and wives is made from the same cloth. It's a special, holy, powerful, unique relationship There's nothing more powerful. There's nothing more bonding. There's nothing more pure. There's nothing more holy, more loving than sexual intercourse. It's often said, all men think about is sex. I was pointing to you to say that. And this is often said as a derogatory comment. But what you're saying is when you understand the way God has designed sex, what you're really saying is what men desire is the highest kind of intimacy that God has created. That sex is the highest form of intimacy that God has created for man and woman. But what happens is lust enters into the equation and it perverts our perception of sex. And it does its best to reduce and bring down, which is the same thing as reduce, it reduces the glory of sex. That's what lust does. And men can and do lust in selfish ways. But don't allow the power and the purity of sex to be diluted by the experiences around you, by the failures that you've done or the failures others have done. And don't let it cause you to live outside the boundaries of God's design for sex in your life. Rebecca DeYoung I read this already earlier, but I'll read it again. She's a professor at Calvin College, and she's compared it to nitroglycerin. She said, contrary to Mrs. Gundy, now Mrs. Gundy is this fictional person that is a staunch no to sex and everything. Sex is bad, okay? So contrary to Mrs. Gundy, sex is not a sin. Contrary to Hugh Hefner, Hugh Hefner is the the founder of Playboy magazine and uh, the father, not the father of lust, but a perpetuator of lust and, and freedom, sexual salvation is what he does. And so he says, and contrary to him, sex is not salvation either. She said, sex is like nitroglycerin. It can be used either to blow up bridges or to heal hearts. Remember, my father had a heart attack, and he was, happened to be at the hospital when he was having it, or he would have died. But while he was there, hooked up to the machine, he started to have the second wave or whatever it was of the heart attack, and they put a nitroglycerin pill under his tongue, and that saved his life. It thinned his blood. And so nitroglycerin used in the right way is healing to the body, but used the wrong way, it does great damage. Lust is, is usually a sin of weakness. People get carried away with curiosity because there's a lot to be curious about. There's strong desires. Um, as you get older, sometimes those desires you know, go down, and uh, when you're a teenager, they're just off the charts. They're all over the place. But there's, there's curiosity and strong desires, and, and we get carried away. I'm not necessarily planning on hurting people or, or getting caught up in something we shouldn't, but we get caught up in the moment. 
and we find ourselves swept away by our desires. These sexual desires that we have are natural. They're powerful. And at the core, they're a beautiful thing. So it's easy to understand how we can underestimate their power in the moment. When people struggle with lust, typically they tend to feel regret and shame. It's not something that's easy to speak of. They usually appreciate offers from other people to help them escape it. I want to help you through this. They respond well to mercy. I forgive you through this. You're not alone in this. They don't typically respond well to condemnation. You're bad for this. What they need is mercy. Most people who struggle with it can feel overwhelmed like St. Augustine did. And it can feel like this uninvited demon that has control over you in your darkest moments. And you're powerless to do anything about it. No one wants to feel powerless. No matter what they do, they can't escape it. Lust distorts the goodness of sex. But it does more than that. When we find ourselves wading in the pools of lust, it also distorts our character. It distorts our perception of what love is. And it reduces our capacity, our ability to even love someone. So God, to understand how lust perverts it, and it's an enemy of great sex, the first thing we should understand is that God has created us as sexual beings. And sexual intercourse is the highest, purest kind of love. That's number one. Number two is this. Lust robs us of great sex. I was just going to put sex in there, but we should understand that there is a difference between sex and great sex. Great sex is what God wants for, uh, for his married followers and for, for mankind. He wants us to enjoy the gifts that he's given to us. But lust comes in and perverts that, and it changes it, and we start chasing things we shouldn't chase instead of enjoying the gift that God has given to us. And so one of the ways it robs us is this. It reduces a sexual pleasure to individual gratification. The first way is it reduces sexual pleasure, the pleasure of having sex, to me getting my gratification. It's all about me. I need my gratification. What that does is when you start to walk in that manner is that you start to use other people for your gratification. A lot of attention women receive from men on the sidewalks is for one reason. They are catcalling you because they see you as an object that they can fulfill their lustful desires on. And the first time it happens, when I'm walking with my daughter or wife, you should pray for me because I will struggle with being a pastor in that moment. Um, unless they're bigger than me, then I'll run. <laughs> um, but first, I'll run slower than my wife or daughter. I'll let them outrun me. So like a bear, you know, I'll let them catch me. So... Uh, but you use others uh, to make them fulfill your desires. And it, what it does is when you're used, it makes you feel empty and, and just low. And so lust perverts it. It also it makes others as instrumental. Like, I need other people to get what I want. And so now you start to view everyone as a source of your gratification. It's a perversion of God's good gift. Cosmo and Maxim and other magazines of the like have articles focusing on having your best orgasm or making things hotter in bed, but nothing in them is written about the beauty and the warmth of sex inside the context of marital love. And I think the reason is simple. I don't think the world thinks 
marital love, sexual bliss exists. A few, or just a couple of months ago or less, there was an article in the New York Times Magazine exposing uh, or writing about how there are married couples who have open marriages now. And what they're doing is saying, you know what, I'm not finding gratification with my wife or my husband, so we're going to stay together for, because we love each other, but we're just not sexually gratified. So we're going to open up our relationship to other people and tell each other about it. They've bought into the lie that sex has to look a certain way or be a certain thing, or it isn't fulfilling. A lot of times, sex needs to have this illicit feeling about it, like, I shouldn't be doing this, that's why it's exciting, in order for it to be gratifying for us. Some people believe that sex needs to be spontaneous. You can't just plan to have it, it needs to be spontaneous, it just happens, so when it doesn't naturally happen, because now you're married and, and you you're, you're see each other with the way you look in the morning, right? And you're, you're using the same restroom, and all these things, the, the masks are off, the makeup is off, the... He's not as buff as he thought he was because he didn't just finish doing push-ups before he came to your door uh, to pick you up. And so, uh, don't lie, you, you do that too. I did too. Um, and so, um, everybody tries really hard in the very beginning of relationships to put on the best, the best foot forward. And when that goes away, we think, well, I must, I must be missing out. I must be, we must have lost that loving feeling, if you will. In a new relationship, everybody's trying hard. But another thing that causes issues within relationships that, um, that reduce it is that a lot of times we bring baggage into a relationship. A lot of times there's a, a one or two or a list of sexual partners that have been in the past prior to marriage, and we bring that in, and sometimes we think it used to be exciting before marriage, and now marriage it's not exciting, so something's wrong, but... Sex within marriage was never meant to be compared to sex outside of marriage. Sex within marriage takes work. And that doesn't sound sexy, but it's true. Planning sex has to be part of your married life. Married folks, if you're um, struggling to have sexual intimacy on a regular basis, you need to make a night of the week or two and plan to spend time to one another. If you're married and you um, can't keep your hands off of each other, if you're one of those rare people, first of all, A, you're probably a little weird. And, and B, uh, everybody else really hates you secretly. Um, sometimes we think, uh, you know, I need to be in the mood before we're able to do this. But if you'll plan to have time with one another, then the mood will follow your actions. I realize sometimes it's easier to just sit and watch TV um, just for one simple reason. It's a lot easier to turn on a TV. Okay, that's my only one. I'm sorry, I tried, I tried. (laughs) Sex isn't about individual gratification. That's what lust uh, causes us to do, that it's about me. But ultimately, sex is about our pleasure. It's about the husband and the wife enjoying one another. The second way that it reduces and it robs us of great sex is this. It reduces sex to strictly, strictly physical. You know, you can say that. That's not, I'm not ready for it. Um, take that slide off. There we go. So the second way that it robs us of great sex is it reduces sex to strictly physical. It's just a physical act. Um, some people lust after others, uh, men and women, and they would say um, 
They were created for me. It's a physical act. What am I doing this wrong? But there's another way we can reduce it to a physical level as well. Some people, married people especially, devalue the importance of sex because to them it's just a physical act. Typically, and it's not just women who struggle with this objection, but some, some type of, sometimes people feel like I have to do my duty as a wife or a husband to fulfill my wife or my husband. And we say, well, it's just a physical act. It's not that big of a deal. Okay, I'll give you the time, and then we'll move past it. We reduce it because of some misperception, misconception of what, what sex is about. It's a recipe for failure if that's part of your marriage. Sex is not the icing on the cake. It's not something that is extra. Sex is the cake. It is the glue that holds a, a marriage together. Um, if a couple is having sex two times a week, then they will relate to one another in a healthier way. And so the small problems that arise throughout the week will stay where they should stay because there's a healthy bond that is being expressed between a husband and a wife. Small problems of communication will stay small because the bond of love is strong in that marriage. It's not strictly physical. Number two, or number three, uh, still not the slide yet, but the second way, third way it robs us is that lust reduces it to a spiritually a strictly spiritually level. Strictly spiritual level is what I'm trying to say. Sometimes Christians especially try to safeguard uh, their hearts from lust, and they say, well, sex shouldn't be pleasurable. It should be just about a spiritual connection between us. And so some people want to guard against that and reducing the pleasure. But great sex is actually physical and spiritually enjoyable. It's not one or the other. In God's plan, it's both. It's good. Typically, uh, uh, great sex is when the woman is enjoying it because just biologically speaking, it's a lot easier for men to enjoy sex than it is women. And so women should be honest with their husbands and say, this is what I do like, this is what I don't like. You should let them know and not settle in your life for sex. Sex is part of a healthy relationship. And men, I read a survey in studying for this, and um, one of the top concerns that women had against their husbands was that they said their, their husbands were too selfish when it came to sex that they didn't consider what the woman was uh, enjoying or not. And so, men, we should be considerate of them and ask them what it is that pleases them. So now we'll move on to something less awkward. Uh, Number three. That was number one, number two. Now number three on the slide. Sex is for love and life. So we see that God's created us as sexual beings. That's who we are. That lust tries to rob us of this great gift of sex. And then sex is for love and life. Lust, in order for it to manifest, in order for it to work, we have to have willful actions taken by ourselves to stop love and to stop life. For example, we'll start it with love. Love happens as a result of sex. So one must actively resist the bonding effect of sex to keep things casual recreational or no strings attached, which are very popular now in our world. There's a movie called No Strings Attached with Natalie Portman and Ashton Kutcher. They have a sexual relationship, and they try to keep it strictly physical, but they find out they just can't do it because the bond and the connection is just there. Sam Smith wrote a song that said, Stay With Me. It's about a one-night stand, 
And he asked in the same song, why am I so emotional? This ain't love. It's clear to see, but won't you stay with me? Because for some reason, there is a bond that is created through sex. And I know this isn't love, or it shouldn't be what I perceive love is, but I want you to stay with me. I don't want you to leave. We may know people, or we may be people, who have stayed in unhealthy relationships against our better judgment because there was a power of a sexual bond between the two people. In order for us to say sex is not love, we have to take active, willful measures to keep us from going that way. The second one is life. Sex is love and life. In order uh, to stop life, we must actively take measures to prevent life from happening through sex. Birth control is used to keep us from having pregnancies, and it's not always successful. Biological nature of the organs itself involved in sexual intercourse leads to life being creative. So something willfully has to happen in order to block the opportunity, at least, for life to come. Uh, An interesting uh, aspect or a dynamic of this uh, that I learned last week about one flesh. I've always heard the husband and the wife come together and they become one flesh. But the author of a book I'm reading to help me through these subjects talked about how when she had her second child, she was at the doctor's office, and the doctor came in. She saw the, the doctor saw the baby, and she said, this child is eternal. And, and something about that sparked a, a thought within her, and she says, wow, my husband and I came together, we had sex together, and this child resulted. And so what two had become one flesh, this one child, and, and what this one had become, no one would ever be able to separate. This union had produced this eternal being, this child that that gave them a connection and a a bond that was far beyond anything that they experienced separately. So sex was designed for more than pleasure, and lust reduces it to simply pleasure. It was designed for more than life, and, and lust can reduce it to where, eh, you don't really have to worry about that. But God has designed it for pleasure and life, for love and life. Pleasure is, uh, is easy to confuse in our world with human fulfillment because it's something that's sought for its own sake. You seek pleasure for pleasure. So the paradox of pleasure is this. You can't get pleasure by seeking it. Aristotle said that pleasure is an effect of certain activities done in a certain way. It is the fruit of activity, but not something that can be produced or achieved without the activity itself. Pleasure is also relative to the activity it accompanies. The pleasure of sitting in the sunshine is not the same as the pleasure of reading a good book. He said sexual pleasure is, is cut of the same cloth as well. It explains why the pleasure of watching pornography requires rapid escalation and stimulation. There's a thirst for more and more and more But a happily married person can enjoy conventional sex decades into a marriage to the same spouse. Sexual pleasure, both its quality and its ability to satisfy, depends on the activity from which you get it. The lustful one gets a shallow, emptying version of pleasure. The physical rush that comes... uh, on and feels great for 
a small amount of time, but it can't satisfy past the moment. It's actually not breaking news, but study after study show that those who score highest in sexual satisfaction are continually, get this, those who are in faithful monogamous marriages, not those who are promiscuous. Why is that? The answer is because their sexual pleasure is the fruit of their love. It's not their pursuit of their pleasure. The sexual pleasure in that relationship is the fruit of their love for one another, not the pursuit of their pleasure. So lust says the body is a pleasure delivery device that is used as you please. But God says something much greater. He says the body is a place where God dwells. And the image of the living God is seen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says our bodies are a sacred space for which the Lord lives within. So what do we do with this topic, with lust and how it is an enemy to great sex? Well, the scriptures do more than prohibit sex outside of marriage, thankfully. Uh, They uh, give us an understanding of how to rightly use this great gift. The first thing uh, that we're to do is to realize that we are all to flee sexual immorality. This includes sexual thoughts that are illicit, wrong desires, wrong fantasies, anything that causes us to indulge selfishly in the pleasure of others. It's not just about abstinence. It's not just about protecting your virginity, even though those can be good barometers to help us not cross lines. But what we're called is something much greater than that. We're called to have chaste hearts and minds, not just bodies. In fact, Jesus said, if you even look upon a woman and lust with her, or lust for her in your heart, then you're already guilty of adultery. So that pretty much excludes everybody if you realize that it, it's also the same rule for women. Professor DeYoung, I'll quote her again because she's quote-worthy. She said, Lust is a problem with the heart above the belt before it is a problem of the heat below it. Some action steps that we can take in order to, to live chaste lives are, some of them are very practical. For example, you have to open up to a trusted friend. Lust thrives in the privacy of uh, solitude. When, when you're alone struggling with it, um, you have to tell someone. You have to get a trusted friend in on your struggle, not to hide it. Uh, private sins will stay typically private and will continue to entangle you. Uh, Another one is filters on your phones and your devices. Parents, if you don't have filters on your kids' devices, do that before you leave church tonight. It is a ridiculously uh, hostile threat uh, to your children. Teens, if you have no filters on your phone, you should get them on there quickly for your own sake. You should take that step of action and say, you know what, I want to protect myself from accidentally coming across something I shouldn't. Uh, small things that, don't, that seem small, especially in our culture of that's what she said. Um, you know what I'm talking about, right? Jokes and languages. I know. I, I, I laugh at a lot of them too, and I really shouldn't, a lot of them. And so we, we need to look at the language and how we're speaking and what, we, what we're laughing at and what we think is, is funny and, and really what is it saying and communicating about uh, what we approve and, and what we don't. And then finally, another action step is, is, 
in those moments of temptation to, to replace those tempting thoughts with something that is pure. In Philippians, Paul says, uh, whatever is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. You ever found yourself dwelling on something you know you shouldn't? The best way to get out from dwelling on the bad is to switch over to something good. And there's always something good to be dwelling on when it comes to Christ. Just immediately look to him and say, Lord Jesus, you are faithful and gracious and good. You should have killed me a long time ago because I am not a good person, but you love me and you've called me to be your child. Replace those temptations. Uh, There's a good song, I can't think of it, but it says, when temptation comes my way, uh, teach my song to rise to you when temptation comes my way. Matt Mayer, Mar, Mar, Matt Mar. Um, Not Mayer, but Mar. Uh, Yeah, when temptation comes my way, teach my song to rise to you. So to to make a, a shift in your thought life. These are practical steps to take. But these practical steps, listen, they're good, but they don't heal your heart. They don't get you to where you need to be. See, chastity, which is a pure life when it comes to your sex, it doesn't mean you're not having sex. It means you're having great sex or God sex, the way God has designed it. And so chastity is not something you need only when you're dating or when you're surfing the Internet. But it's a quality of your character. It's something you need as a, as a married man or woman as well. It will be evident, this characteristic in your life. Chastity is the project of becoming a person with an outlook that allows one to selflessly appreciate good and attractive things, most especially bodies and the pleasures they afford, by keeping those goods ordered to the good of the whole person in his or her vocation of love, which is summertime. And so chastity is more than just learning to walk with purity in the world of yoga pants, in the world of Fifty Shades of Grey, right? Two tempting things for men and for women. It's more than that. Chastity doesn't say, how far can I go with this? How far is too far? Chastity says, how can my life, my thoughts, my choices, my emotional responses, my conversation, my behavior, make me a person who is best prepared to give and receive love in a relationship with others. So you need to surround yourself with friends that will encourage you on this quest, that desire to follow Jesus as well, that know that your desire to to express your sexuality in a way that brings joy and pleasure to your life and to your spouse's life, that teach you how to respect one another, teach you how to respect yourself. Good friendships that prior to marriage even can teach us how to do both to respect others and respect ourselves and and teach us how to give and receive love appropriately. Immerse yourself in pursuing the Lord with all of your desires. And this is a verse I think you should memorize right here. In chapter 5 of Galatians, verse 16, Paul says to them, But I say, walk by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God. As a follower of Christ, you have the Spirit of God living within you. And he's saying, walk by the Spirit, and you will not, say will not, will not, you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And flesh here means sinful nature. It doesn't mean just your body, but the sinful nature. He's saying, if you walk by the power of the Spirit that God has given you, you have victory. You will not carry out the desire of the flesh. You're not alone in your struggle against lust, but submit to the Lordship of Jesus throughout the day, many times a day, and ask the Spirit of God to fall fresh on you moment after moment. 
And when you have a healthy relationship with God and with godly friends, then you can adequately be fed in your need to be loved and your need to love others as well. And you'll start to see the lies of lust and despise all of its empty promises that it has to offer. And my final word is this. You ready? You're not alone. Every one of us have fallen below the marker when it comes to lust. We have failed to live as God has designed us and desires us to live. We have failed to live a chaste life. This is one of the sins that the Lord Jesus came to give us forgiveness over. His grace and His forgiveness that He gives to us is not a license for us to go out and do whatever we want, but it's a promise that when we do come to Him, He will bring healing and forgiveness and life to us. So if you feel guilty and ashamed because of lust in your life, then today is the best place for you to be. Those feelings reveal to us that there's something better, that we're missing the mark. We know we're not where we should be, but in Christ there's healing and there's hope for all who will call upon the name of Jesus for help. Not only will He forgive you for your sins, but He will give you victory as you walk with Him going forward from this day. Maybe you've bought into the lies of lust and you've pursued sex in ways that are outside of God's parameters. Maybe you've bought into the lies of lust and you've run from sex in your marriage. Maybe you've bought into the lies of lust and you've used your marriage to fulfill lustful desires from your spouse. Whatever it is, Jesus knows your failures and he knows your sins. And right now, in this moment, he is ready and waiting to forgive you and to bring a release and a relief from that guilt and shame. So tonight's the night to call on him in prayer to receive his mercy fresh and anew, to call on him to redeem your marriage and say, God, my marriage, my sexual life is not about me. It's about us. And I ask you to redeem my marriage. Tonight is our night to call on him and to trust his promises as far superior than the ever-changing lies of this vice called lust. Tonight is our opportunity to turn our hearts from vice to virtue. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to speak on lust and the way you have designed our bodies to live in harmony, not only with you spiritually, but also with our spouses sexually. And it is very easy to go off track. And I thank you, Jesus, that you are a Lord who understands our temptations. It tells us in the, you tell us in the Scriptures that, that you understand everything. Every temptation that is common to us is something that you're aware of and you understand. And so I thank you that we're, we're not coming to a God who doesn't understand our struggles, but we're coming to a God who has understood them and who has defeated them. And we claim your victory tonight, Lord. Give us a holy repentance of our our lust and our sins. May we turn from them and may we flee from them going forward so that we would pursue you and your righteousness in every way possible. In Jesus' name, amen.